Over the last few weeks, we have begun dabbling in Psalms, and I recognize we've got a lot of visitors here today, so let me give my one little 30-second caveat. Our church family this year in 2022 is going through something we're calling the Year of the Bible, where we're taking January to December and going from Genesis to Revelation, following the main story, if you will, the high points of Scripture. Not to say that there's parts of the Bible that aren't important, but following what's called the meta narrative, the primary story of Scripture. And as we do this, we also have a reading plan where throughout the week, our church family's reading the Bible, and then we come together on Sunday and we discuss what we read throughout last week. So what we're talking about today is inspired by what we read throughout the week. And if you want to jump in that reading plan with us, and in this year of the Bible, all you have to do is either go to the info desk after service is out, and you can grab the reading plan and jump in on week 19 for next week, or you can go to our website, wog.church, and at the very top there, you'll see uh, the Bible reading plan. You can click on it, and you'll be able to jump in on that reading plan with us. Again, next week, we'll be reading week 19. Over the last few weeks, we've begun dabbling in the book of Psalms, and this has corresponded with First and Second Samuel, primarily because David wrote more, uh, he wrote the largest percentage, if you will, of the book of Psalms. He wrote 73 of the Psalms, to be exact, and even possibly more than that, because about 50 of the Psalms um, are anonymous. And so there's a chance he, he wrote even more, and there's several other authors or writers or biblical characters that contributed to the book of Psalms. And listen, the book of Psalms is absolute dynamite. It is a powerful book full of just praise to God, full of confessions of dependence on God, even full of confessions of sin, how David shows how he confessed and responded to God when he was confronted with his sin. The book of Psalms is front to back just wonderful, a great, great book. And I pray that you've been encouraged as you've been in the book of Psalms. What I love about the book of Psalms is that it so beautifully captures passion for God. That the book of Psalms, you read it and it just screams from beginning to end. The book of Psalms screams passion for God. And, and it's great that also so much of the book is connected to David because he's a guy who his life screamed passion for God. I, I, I want to just read a couple of Psalms really quick, some of the really popular ones, uh, just to give a snapshot of the book of Psalms. I think about Psalms 27 where it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That passionate view of God as our salvation and our strength. Psalms 139, this is a, relative, a re very relevant verse to what's going on in our world today. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. In a world who's trying to convince us certain things about what's happening in a mother's womb, God says, I'm knitting you together in your mother's womb. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me along still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runneth over. 
Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Very famous passages like that are in the book of Psalms. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Saying the same thing. Psalm 34, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. What what a salve to the soul of the brokenhearted we find in the book of Psalms. Psalm 37, 4, take delight in the Lord or delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your hearts. Psalm 51, we read last week and talked about David repenting of his sins, saying, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That that beautiful confession of sin and repentance of its psalms is just loaded with gold nuggets for our soul. Most of us know that love for God, passion for God is essentially the most important aspect of our life. If you're familiar with Christianity at all, you know the great commandment, right? In Matthew, Jesus is talking to a bunch of people in Matthew chapter 22, and these Pharisees come up to Jesus, and they're trying to trick him. They say, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he quotes a portion of the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, where he says, well, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is what's most important to God, is loving God with everything you've got. This passion for him that overflows into every area of our lives. See, David was referred to as a man after God's own heart. And we see it in so many of David's actions, in his speech, the way he talked about God, the things he said of God. We see it in his repentance, the way that when he was confronted by God with the sin that he brought into the relationship between him and God, the way he repented revealed his passionate relationship for God. And he said, cast me not away. Don't cast me away. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. His passion for God motivated his repentance because he didn't want to lose the presence of God and the Holy Spirit In his life, his passion for God is seen in his poetry and in his psalms, the songs that he wrote. David loved God. And we're not talking about some bland, dry, mental ascent love for God. Like, yeah, I love you, brother. We're talking about heart beating, undignified dancing, giant defying, praising and shouting love for God. That's the way that David loved God. Now, today I want to talk from Psalms about three things. One, the benefits of loving God. Two, I want to talk about the consequences of not loving God. And three, a little bit of pragmatism of the how-to, what it looks like to love God. See, first and foremost, in a life in which we are commanded by God, the God of all creation has commanded us to love him. Well, we're immediately presented with a little bit of a problem because we're commanded to love him. And camera guys, you might want to get your hands on real quick because I'm going to move around a little bit. But uh, when, when, when we're commanded to love God, it's essentially like me going, sorry, I know I'm messing you guys up on the camera. Love me. You got me, Rob? 
I know you do love me. That's why it's easy to mess with you that way. But essentially, what is it like you go up to someone and just say, love me? Okay, that's a little bit weird, a little bit awkward. But the God of all creation has commanded that we love him. Think about the people in your life who you would put in a category of that you love them. And, and, and I'm not talking about general love, like we love everybody, which is a biblical truth that we are called to love everyone, love our neighbors, love one another, love God. But the people that you love in a way that David is portrayed as loving God, where you have passion that flows out of your life in the way that you interact with them, the way that you talk about them, those people are not people that you were commanded to love, even though... It's true, Scripture does command us to love others, to love one another. It's not the command that motivated your passionate love for them. You see, in Scripture, love uh, for God is often equated with obeying God, obedience for God. But there's also multiple times where the heart behind the obedience is what's magnified, is what God is looking at. He's looking at not only what we're doing, but why we're doing it. There's multiple times where people are confronted who actually did the right things on the surface, but did them with the wrong heart. And so God today is wanting to know what's in our heart. He cares about our genuine love and passion for him. And the challenge is that the word of God makes it abundantly clear that we actually lack the capacity or the ability, I would say, moreover, we lack the ability to love God. We don't have the power. So first and foremost, the biggest challenge is acknowledging that we can't even do what we're commanded to do and what we will be held accountable for. Well, then we start thinking, okay, Stephen, well, how is that just? How is it just that God would command us to love him, yet at the same time, we, we don't have the ability to love him. Well, God, like much of what he has done in scripture, has given commands that only he can bring to pass so that we don't get the glory from it, but he does. See, even in our love for God, he is the one who gets the glory for working in us to love him, to have passion for him. Sometimes God wants us to recognize, not sometimes, all times, he wants us to recognize that we need him in every area of our lives. Every, I think about sometimes when uh, my girls like to play chase and they like to wrestle and stuff like that. And sometimes, you know, I'm rolling around on the floor and they're climbing on me and they're wrestling or tickle fights or chasing each other around the yard or whatever. And sometimes I'm like, oh no, you pinned me or you got me or you're tickling me and oh, you won. But everyone in this room knows they didn't really win. Because all it takes is me going, my turn, and they don't have a chance to beat me. And sometimes I stop doing the whole, oh, you won, yay, let's cheer for you. And I beat them because I want them to know that daddy's more powerful than them. <laughs> I think that's important for my daughters to understand. Sometimes we'll be racing and it's like, Oh, no, Jojo, how did you beat me? Oh, Marley, you're so fast. And they're elated. They're so happy they beat Daddy. But sometimes we're out running, and I'm like, oh, you're so fast. And then I just smoke them. 
Because I think they need to know, I think it's good for them to know that their father who loves them is also way stronger than them and way more powerful than them because sometimes they think that the things that dad wants for them are not good and they therefore want to disobey or rebel or argue or fight against me. And so sometimes it's really good for them to know, hey, you need me. Hey, you could try to fight me, but if I want to, I win every time, sweet little girl, every time. God wants us to recognize even though he has commanded us to love him, to serve him, to worship him, to obey him, to follow him, we can't do it on our own. We need him. We need his power. We need his ability. If you don't believe me, let's go really quick to Romans chapter 3. This is a verse where it is really exposed. Romans chapter 3, we'll look at verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. You know, I used to read these verses growing up and go, huh, that must be talking about like not Christians. That's, this must be talking about people who, who, who don't know God. And in, in a sense, that's true. But, and I'll expound on that. But it says there is none righteous. And in case you're thinking, well, I mean, really none? No, not one. Like you see the argument in the verse right here. None is righteous. No, <laughs> not one. None understands. No one understands. No one seeks after God. No one. <laughs> All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law like commandments to love God, <coughs> excuse me, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Hmm. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. A few things there. There's an overwhelming theme of that Old Testament passage that's being quoted here in Romans 3. There's no such thing as a good person. Well, why, why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. Bad things happen to bad people because there's no such thing as good people. There are only bad people who have been made righteous by the grace and love and mercy and forgiveness of God. I was having a conversation with one of our board members a few weeks ago, and he said, the greatest evil is human good. And outside of the context of the conversation, you're going, wait, that's oxymoronic. How can human good be evil? In, and what he was getting at is the point of the idea that, that humanity is good, that the, everybody's good, that there's good in everyone. And even though, again, there may be shades of truth that people who don't know God, you still see them do good things or be kind or be generous or benevolent. The danger is that if we think we're good, we don't think we need God. If we think we're good, we don't think that we need God. This is why it's harder for people who think they are good to actually come to saving faith in Jesus Christ because you're being confronted with a message that is contrary to what you have believed about yourself. It's like believing that you're healthy and then someone reveals, a doctor shows from a test or from some scan or something, actually, you're not healthy. 
There's problems under the surface. And if you don't address those problems, it will be detrimental to you. Scripture is the diagnostic that looks beneath the surface to help us see, even though we think we're good, there's none who are good. There are none righteous. And even Paul goes on to say that when he's doing good works, he's saying it's God in me, Christ works in me. Think about Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, where Paul to the Philippians, he says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the perfect day. Talking about the day that we're no longer here in this life. Saying that he who began the good work in you, you didn't start the good work in yourself. If there is good work in you, it is because the gracious God has begun that work in you. And he will be faithful to complete it. If you go to the next chapter in Philippians 2, you'll see the same Apostle Paul saying that it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Meaning, it's God who's at work in you to want to please him and to actually please him. That the desire you have to please God graciously comes to you from God. And the ability to actually act on it and obey him also comes from God. It is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. See, we need God. We need his help at the most basic and fundamental core of what it is to serve God, which is loving him. We need his help to love him. The other thing we see from this passage in Romans 3 is that the law was given to confront all of us like it just did, saying, hey, you might think you're good, but you're not. It's given to confront us and show all of us that we're in trouble, that all of us are born sinners. And like King David, in Psalm 51, he said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And as much as I might not like or agree with much of what Lady Gaga says, she is right when she sings, I was born this way. Yeah, we were all born in sin. Every single one of us. So the idea that this is who I am because I was just born this way. Yeah, I was born wanting evil things. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Which is why in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus sneaks out at midnight to talk to Jesus saying, how do I get into the kingdom? Jesus says to him, well, you've got to be born again. And this Pharisee goes, okay, this is awkward, Jesus. Am I supposed to somehow re-enter my mother's womb? Thinking in the natural, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Unless you're born of water and of spirit, water being that, that time you were born and of spirit, born again, made new by the Holy Spirit of God, he said, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. That's why we have to be born again. This is why we need the Holy Spirit to be at work in us because we can have all the commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Come on, be passionate for God. Come on, obey him, serve him, give serve others, love others. And what humanity usually does because humanity believes itself to be good is hears those commands and goes, all right, white knuckles, willpower, I'm going to do it. And we've seen already throughout the Old Testament in the Israelites. And also we know in our own life that even though we know what we're supposed to do, there's plenty of times that we violate what we know we're supposed to do. Why? Because the problem is not what we know. It is what we believe and what we love. Our do comes from our love. Think about it. What, what do you prioritize in your schedule? What are the non-negotiables in your schedule? 
Those things are motivated by what you love. Well, I don't love my job, and I don't, I don't negotiate that. I prioritize that, but I don't love my job. Well, you go to your job because you love your family, and you love your kids, and you want to provide for them, right? So the core even behind that is, again, motivated by what you love. See, loving God begins with meeting God. I love my wife because I met her in this church one night out in the auditorium. She was wearing chucks and jeans and a yellow shirt. And I saw her and met her and thought, wow, she's pretty. I want to get to know her. And we began to get to know each other. And the more I got to know her, the more I fell in love with her to the extent that I was like, I actually want to spend the rest of my life with this girl. See, loving God, even though there is the command, like all commands, we need to recognize our need for God as the drive to actually accomplish what he's commanding us to do. You cannot love God truly without knowing God, without meeting God. That's why we're spending this year just digging into scripture. Because I could get up here and preach at you every week and say, guys, be better. Come on, love God, guys. Come on, stop sinning. But if you don't have the love in your heart for God, those commands, my encouragement, the inspiration you feel on a Sunday morning will wane and fade and what's in your heart will eventually overrule and take over and return you to what's in your heart. This is why we must be born again. This is why we must become new. This is why the Holy Spirit has to transform us and change us and empower us. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Paul talking to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 3, Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. He says, for this reason I bow my knees. He's talking about how he prays for the church. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you, he may grant you, God may give you, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that... So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul talking to the church in Ephesus is telling them, he's saying to them, listen, my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit would fill you with power so that you could fathom, so that you could, one, have Christ dwell in you, and then beyond that, that you could actually know the love of Christ, that you could understand the breadth of it, the length of it, how deep, how high, deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a, no, no, I'm the only Sunday schooler, okay, sorry about that, those, those things just trigger and come out. How deep, how wide, how, how broad, how high, how low, how vast the love of God is, the love of Christ is. And then he says this, which surpasses knowledge. He's saying, I pray for you that the Holy Spirit could come in you and help you know what you can't know. 
that you would know the love of Christ, how deep, how wide, how vast, that surpasses knowledge. How do we know what we can't know? He's saying, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would help you know what you can't know. And then he goes on in verse 20 to say, well, to him who is able, him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think, so we can understand, we can know, we can grasp the love of God within our capacity by the work of the Spirit within us. But we can't know the love of God without God working in our lives. First, to illuminate, to open our eyes, to see the truth, to help us believe it. The Holy Spirit draws us to God. He opens our eyes to see the truth. He works in us to change our heart and make us new. Old Testament so many times prophesies about the heart change in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. We need those new hearts. We can't love God without God's help. We can't love God without God's help. So first and foremost today, as we recognize the passion that David had for God, and it's really inspiring to us, and we read the way that he talked about God. We read about the way he loved and served and obeyed God. Not that he was perfect because we know he sinned, but the way that he repented when he was confronted with his sin. We see those things. How do we love God the same way? Well, it starts with knowing God. It starts with pursuing God. And if you're here today and you're going, man, my, I feel like my whole life, or maybe not your whole life, maybe it's recently you've come to the knowledge or the awareness that there is a God who we are commanded to love, we are commanded to obey, we are commanded to serve, but you feel like you don't have the power, you don't have the drive that I know what I'm supposed to do, but I feel like I can't or I, I inevitably keep returning to it. I'd, I'd ask you to ask yourself, have you truly known the Lord? Have you truly sought Him and seeked Him out? Have you pursued him? Have you prayed? God, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I know you. I, I, I think I believe in you. I think about the guy who was talking to Jesus. And Jesus said, do you believe? And he said, I believe, but, but help my unbelief. Man, I think God delights in an honest prayer like that. And we see Jesus answer his prayer. That if we could be more honest with God, instead of just going, oh, God, I believe, when in your heart you're like, I, I don't know that I do, or you, you're wrestling with doubt, or you're like, I, I, I love God, when you're like, oh, I don't know that I do. Man, just ask God for the help. Say, God, I want to love you. I want to know you. I want to delight in you. I want to be hungry for you. Would you help me? Scripture says over and over, Old Testament and New Testament, that God gives grace to the humble. And when we humble ourselves before the Lord and go, I don't got this. I know I'm commanded to love you. I know I'm commanded to serve you. I mean, oh, but I don't got this. Would you help me? God gives grace, the ability, the power. So pray today. Having said that, let's look in the book of Psalms, going back to our reading from this week. Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 as we look at benefits of loving God. Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not 
in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his, I love this word, what does it say? His delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit and its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. One of the first things we can see here is that there are benefits to living a godly life. And there are two people that are exhibited here in this chapter of Psalms 1. Exhibit A those who don't look to the world when choosing how to live. It says, blessed are those who walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the, uh, the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. Those who are not consulting the world on the way that we are to live in the world. It says, blessed are those who don't look at the world when choosing how to live. That's exhibit A. Those who don't go, world, tell me how to live. Exhibit B is those who do. A.K.A. what this passage calls the wicked. And so we see there are benefits to living a godly life. There are also consequences. And listen, someone cannot know God, not love God, still obey and do biblical principles and things like that and obey God in, in moments of their life and in different ways and still reap benefits. Like if you obey God by not committing murder there are societal benefits to that obedience, right? You don't have to know God to obey that, but you have to know God to obey it with a joyful heart delighting in Him and giving glory to Him by it. And so all of that to say, even though there are benefits to living a godly life, on the contrary, there are consequences to living an ungodly life. See, the psalm says that the wicked, those who walk in the counsel of the wicked, those who stand in the way of sinners, those who sit in the seat of scoffers, what does it say about them? What are the consequences? Well, that they're tossed out like the chaff which the wind drives away. Of course, in biblical days, they would harvest grain. They would bring it all into the storehouse. They would put it in these pans. They would pluck the heads into these little pans, and they would throw it up in the air in the threshing floor, and they would throw it up and thresh it. And when this happened, the grain weighs more than the chaff, and the chaff would blow away in the wind, and the grain would fall back down. And so this way, they're not eating the chaff or the excess stuff that you don't want to eat. The grain would be separated from the chaff. And he's saying, the wicked are like the chaff that are just dri driven away by the wind. He goes on to say that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor in the congregation of the righteous. I believe these are eschatological phrases, that's a big Christian term for end time phrases or, or judgment day phrases that the, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That doesn't mean they won't stand before judgment, but they'll not be able to stand in judgment. That as they stand before God, it's not going to go well for them. They'll not stand in the judgment nor in the congregation of the righteous Verse 6 goes on to say that the way of the wicked will perish. Now, let's look back 
at what separates or contrasts the righteous person from the wicked person in verse 6. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates once a week for 40 minutes on Sunday. Oh, if you're reading, then you're maybe one of the ones who are laughing. No, it says, on his law he meditates day and night. We need a love for God's word. He said he delights in God's law. And on that law, because he delights in it, not because he's commanded to, not because he's trying to just be obedient contrary to what he delights in, going, I really delight in this stuff, but I guess I better meditate in the law. He knows, but on his law, or he delights in the law, and on that law, he meditates day and night. This is one of the primary elements, an absolute necessity for stirring our affections for God. In a relationship where we're commanded to love God, it is our responsibility to stir our affections for God. First and foremost, we have to come to know God. We have to to find affection for God. We have to, to love him. I think about Matthew 13 where Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. A man finds it and for joy over what he finds, he hides it, goes and sells everything he has so he can get that treasure, buy that field and get the treasure. That's a beautiful picture of of falling in love with God, discovering who he is, and then from that, loving him. But beyond that, any husband and wife who have been married more than a year, maybe not even that long, can tell you that there are days that you don't feel the love that you truly do have for your spouse. There are days you don't feel it. There are moments where you're frustrated with one another and you don't feel the affection that you know, the covenant, the commitment to one another that you truly do have. And so what do you do in those moments? You just go, oh, I guess I don't love them, so uh, forget them. No? You go, oh, I I guess I don't love them anymore, so I'm walking away. No, because your feelings are fickle and weak and they lie to you all the time. And so we return to what we know to be true We remind ourselves of the value of that person, the relationship of who we know, and we stir our affections. It's our responsibility when we don't feel the love for God, if we have truly known him, if we've taken care of the first part of the conversation today, and we have loved God, and we do delight in him, but we don't feel it on any moment or any day, then it's our responsibility to stir our affections for him. And one of the most important ways, one of the best ways to do that is by getting into his word. Yesterday morning, I was talking with someone at men's breakfast in our table, and he said, it's funny, the more that you love God, the more love he gives you for himself. The more that you love the word and the more you get into the word, the more that you love the word. It's this growing cycle, but likewise, the less you, you get into the word, the less you love it. And I'm running out of time today, but I was going to go to Psalm 19 where it talks about how wonderful the law of the Lord is. I was going to go to Psalm 119. But how do we stir our affections for God? That's what I want to look at this this final section today. How do we stir our affections for God? We've got six ways, and there's probably more than that, but here's six that I've got. For those of you who like how-tos and practical things, one, by spending time in God's word. 
This is reading his word, studying his word, meditating on his word, stirring your affections. I find in my own life that there are plenty of times that I don't want to do this, but it's like so many other things in our lives that when you actually do go do it, you are so thankful you did and it gives you that desire to do it more. It gives you that hunger to do it more. And when I've done that, I can tell you about mornings where I've woken up, exhausted, didn't want to get up and spend time in the word. And I'm like, I don't want to do this. And then I did it. And then it's hard for me to stop to go to work because I'm so delighting in my hunger, my affections for God are stirred. So one, we store our affections for God by spending time in his word. Two, we spend by spending time memorizing God's word. In Psalms, David said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is one of the ways we fight sin and temptation is by putting God's word in our hearts, by memorizing it. And when other voices in our life and in our world tell us things that are contrary to God, when you've memorized his word, it comes up out of you. And you can combat those false ideas. Three, we stir our affections for God by spending time with God in prayer. By communing with him, talking with him. And so many times we don't do this because we think it's a formal sit down and block out an hour. And because we think that that's what prayer is, we rob ourselves of the day-long prayer without ceasing where when I'm driving, I'm talking to God. When I'm sitting at my desk, I'm talking to God. When I'm at home playing with my kids, I'm talking to God. That five seconds, 10 seconds, 30 seconds can be that communion with God, praying with Him where we're stirring our affections for Him. We stir our affections with God, uh, for God for by spending time with God's people. One of the other reasons we gather on Sunday, it stirs our affections for God by talking with other believers about their relationship with Him, what God's doing in their lives, in community groups, going over to one another's houses and fellowshipping together. Five, we stir our affections for God by spending time doing good works. How many times have you gone to do a good thing for someone, serve someone, give and do something like that, and you're finished with it, and it's like it stirred your affections for God? Six, we stir our affections for God by spending time consuming content that feeds our spirit. What does that mean? That means uh, sermons, podcasts, books, uh, radio, music, worship music, Christian music, things that stir our affection. I know pretty easily that if I don't feel love for God, I can plug in some Shane and Shane, and in a matter of five to ten minutes, my affections for God are going to be stirred by listening to some hymns, and I'm going to find myself loving God again by using those tools that God has made accessible to us to stir our affections. Same way that when I don't feel affections for my wife, it is my responsibility to stir my affections for her. How? Let's go on a date. Let's, let's shut off the TV and let's talk. What are the different things that I can do that will stir my affections for the relationship that I have, for the love that I know is there when I don't feel it? See, if you don't love God, ask yourself firstly, have I ever truly known him? Am I truly in the faith? And if you're confident after examining yourself, if you're confident of your assurance that you know the Lord, that you have tasted and loved him before, then see if there's any sin in, which your in your life in which you need to repent, robbing your affections for God, get that out of the way. And then also beyond that, avail yourself to the things that stir your affection for God. Again, it is our responsibility to stir our affections for God. The end of the book in Revelation chapter two, the apostle John is given vision of seven churches of Asia, 
One of those churches was called Ephesus. It's the same church that Paul wrote that letter to that we were reading earlier. You know what he said, what God said, Jesus said to the church at Ephesus? He was at first bragging about them. You guys have done well. You've done good works. You've got great faith. And then he goes on to say, but I've got this one thing against you. You know what it was? You've forgotten your first love. I've been there. I've felt that. What do we do when that happens? We do anything and everything we can to stir our affections for God. Because He is lovely, He is wonderful, He is beautiful, He is infinitely valuable. And if the affections aren't there, it's because we've lost sight of the truth. And so let's stir our affections. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. God, again, I ask by your Holy Spirit that if there's anyone here who has not truly known you, has not tasted and seen that you are good, if there are even people who who know how to do Christianity, so to speak, if there's people who know how to go through the motions, know how to look the part, but haven't actually known you, God, I ask that you would do a work by your Holy Spirit just like we read from your word today. That you would give them the power to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That they could comprehend the breadth, the width, the length, the depth, the height of the love of Christ. They would comprehend it in a way that changes their hearts. That all of us, by your grace, would be a people who delight in you. Who find our joy in you. Who delight in your law, in your word. Who delight in our church family and and the fellowship we have together with one another. That your work would be so transformational in our hearts that it would change every aspect of our lives. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here today who's in a dry season that feels like they've, they've drifted from you or strayed away from you, that knows that they, they, they know they're supposed to love you, they want to love you, God, I ask today that, that you would help them stir their own affections, but also, God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would just refresh them, renew them, revive them, revive us, God to have true, deep, passionate love for you. That we could give glory to you by the way that we delight in you. In Jesus' name, amen.